Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all of the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that sight, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Today we come to the cross, the pinnacle moment of all of history. Crucifixion, by the time Jesus came, became something the Romans had mastered. They took a barbaric way to put someone to death and had perfected it to a science. Cicero, the Roman author and orator, said this, Let the very name of the cross be far away from Roman citizens, not from their bodies only, but from their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears. Cicero did not even want Roman citizens to think about a cross, not because Jesus had died on one, but because it was such a barbaric event. It was such a horrific exercise of punishment. He did not even want the Roman citizens to ever think about it, see it, or hear it. John R. Stott, who arguably is one of the great theologians of our day, he passed away back in 2011, wrote a book called The Cross of Christ. It's probably the book on the cross. When thinking about what um, what could have been chosen as a symbol for Christ, he wrote these words. Christians might have chosen the crib or manger in which the baby Jesus was laid, or the carpenter's bench at which he worked as a young man in Nazareth dignifying manual labor, or the boat from which he taught the crowds in Galilee, or the apron he wore when he was washing the apostles' feet, which would have spoke to his very spirit of humble service. Then there was the stone, which, having been rolled from the mouth of Joseph's tomb, would have proclaimed his resurrection. Other possibilities were the throne, the symbol of divine sovereignty, which John in his vision of heaven saw that Jesus was sharing, or the dove, the symbol of the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven on the day of Pentecost. Any of these seven symbols would have been suitable as a pointer to some aspect of the ministry of our Lord. But instead, the chosen symbol came to be a simple cross. Its two bars were already a cosmic symbol from remote antiquity of the axis between heaven and earth. But its choice by Christians had a more specific explanation. They wished to commemorate as central to their understanding of Jesus, neither his birth nor his youth, neither his teaching nor his service, neither his resurrection nor his reign, not his gift of the Holy Spirit, but his death, his crucifixion. Tertullian, the North African lawyer and theologian around 200 AD, wrote this, At every forward step and movement, at every going in and out, we put on our clothes and shoes. When we bathe, 
when we sit at the table, when we light the lamps on couch, on seat, in all the ordinary actions of daily life, we trace upon the forehead the sign of the cross. There is not a more important symbol. There is not a more important moment in all of human history than the cross of Christ. As we continue our walk backward from the book of Luke, we really see that what Jesus was pointing his whole ministry toward. Today we see the purpose of his coming in that little manger. Simply decorated is the cross with the manger before it. Understand that when the little baby was here, the the cross was already in the picture of God's eye. As God looks at all of history, he sees both the past and he sees the future and he sees it all at the same time. So when he sees his son born in the manger, simultaneously he sees his son on the cross. Simultaneously he sees that little bitty baby and he sees Christ on the cross. In Luke chapter 23, the text that I read just a few moments ago, I found what I felt are three contrasts. And so I've entitled the message today, The Three or the Cross of Contrast. Three things that we see kind of both ends of the spectrum. And I want to share those with you this morning. At the same time, we're going to leave the lights dim today. And when there's not words on the screen, I want the picture of the cross on the screen. We cannot ever forget, we cannot ever take for granted that moment in history. So the first contrast is this. The failure of the son versus the the faithfulness of the son. The failure of the son versus the faithfulness of the son. Let me read to you from the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is moving quickly up my list of favorite translations it reads this it'll be on the screen it was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three because the sun's light failed the curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle now just quickly that sanctuary curtain was the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies in the temple this material was about four inches solid material thick It wasn't something that was just a a little piece of cotton that could rip. And that in fact that it ripped from the top to the bottom. All that was doing was signifying that no longer did we have to go to someone to go to God. But we could now go directly to God ourselves. We no longer needed a priest in the middle. What we could do now was just simply go to our Heavenly Father and say, I come to you with my burdens. I come to you with my pain. I come to you with my hurt. I come to you with my my praise and my glory. And I don't need somebody else to do it because now I can just come to you because you came to us. Do you get that? We don't get to go to God because we're something special. We get to go to God because God came to be with us. He said, here's the door. I'm going to open it for you. I want you to catch the phrase here. Let me pull it out of the phrase. Here it is. Because the sun's light failed. I'm going to go back to the point here. I just want you to understand the curtain idea. The sun's light failed. Now understand, this was around 12 noon. It's not dark at 12 noon. At the brightest time of the day, in the sun, that great big ball of fire that takes 8 minutes and 20 seconds for the light from the sun to reach the planet Earth at the speed of light became darkened. Now, you may say, or you may hear someone say, well, it was a solar eclipse. That's an easy explanation for that. 
And we could sit here and say, well, God could make a solar eclipse at the very moment that Jesus died. He could have done that, but he didn't. (laughs) He didn't. And I have two reasons why he didn't. There are two reasons that you cannot argue with, nor can you defeat. So if you think it was an eclipse, as my professor says, hold on to that idea because I'm about to blow it out of the water. Here it is. First, it was dark for three hours. Solar eclipse don't take three hours. The moon passes between the sun and the earth, and it moves. And so it's dark for just a few minutes, and then it moves. It says, the Bible says, it was dark for three hours. That would have meant, if it was a solar eclipse, it was the longest solar eclipse in all of human history. And that is that the moon would have then got in between the earth and the sun and just stopped there. For three hours, it stopped. Didn't work that way. It would have kept moving. Secondly... And here's the, really the kicker to the whole solar eclipse idea is a bad idea. A solar eclipse can only happen during what's called a new moon phase, not during a full moon phase. Okay? So there's the new moon and there's a full moon. A full moon, the Passover would have been a full moon. It's always a full moon. In fact, Passover is based on when the full moon in the spring is. And it's the first Saturday after the first full moon of, and it's this whole equation. So the Passover event that Jesus is crucified at would have been a full moon. Well, when it's a full moon, the moon is on the opposite side of the earth as the sun. There's no way for a full moon, when we have a solar eclipse today, it's because a new moon is passing in front of the sun, not a full moon, because when it's a full moon, a full moon, it's on the other side of the earth from the sun. As it spins around, it finally catches up during a new moon, not a full moon. So it is absolutely impossible for a solar eclipse to have happened at the moment of Jesus' death because the moon was on the other side of the planet. So anybody who says, well, it was just as old, it couldn't have been. Here's what happened. Creation cried out at the death of God. That's what was happening in this moment. We conclude that the darkness of Luke 23 was the universe responding to the Creator's suffering and eventual death. That's why I love the Holman Christian Standard Bible in that phrase that it said that because the sun's light failed. It's almost a picture, if you want to go this far, it's almost a picture that man failed God because we crucified him. Don't think that we escape responsibility for that fact. The sun's light failed. That is the, the light, eight minutes and 20 seconds before Jesus was on the cross, it stopped, and that light stopped, and then it restarted again. That has to be a divine moment from God. On the other side of the sun's failure, this is our contrast. We, we have the sun's failure. That is, creation cried out because God died on the cross. Because God's son was the one being crucified, and he died. On the other side, we have the sun's faithfulness. As I mentioned last week, this was something Jesus knew was coming. We looked at, I gave you many references to that. Jesus predicted this. He said, there's going to come a time. I'm going to be handed over to bad people. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. But don't worry, I'm going to be raised from the dead. He kept telling his disciples that many times. I I gave you about seven or eight verses last week. He told his followers that he would be handed over and put to death. But we also know this in Luke chapter 22, verse 41. I think it's going to be on the screen. He, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. 
And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but what? Yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Some uh, theologians, some commentaries talk about the physiological um, time where your sweat can literally become drops of blood under tremendous amounts of stress that it can, this physiological thing can happen to our bodies. Now, I I want you to just see a couple of things about this text. Number one is the cross was not something Jesus was looking forward to. I mean, Jesus didn't wake up on this day and go, hey, today's the day, you know, I'm going to Disney World. That's not what that day was for him. In fact, he spent time in the garden. Jesus understood what faithfulness was all about. Because he is God and our God is faithful. I love Alan. I I leaned over to Alan when he came down. I said, hey, Alan, by the way, I'm I'm not going to be here next Sunday. I'm going to the convention. And, and he kind of gave me this like fearful look. And I'm thinking, why is he looking so scared? And you know, this is after my prayer time. And I said, I'm going to need you to do the prayer time next Sunday. And he went, oh, okay. And I was like, oh, you thought I was going to ask you to preach next Sunday, didn't you? And uh, he said, yeah, you weren't giving me only a week's notice. And then he came up and did his thing. And I was like, don't tell me you're not ready to preach. I mean, just don't go there. But listen, we, we, God is faithful. Amen. God is faithful. And Jesus understood and understands what faithfulness is all about. Now, Alan asked you if anybody ever failed. Okay, we all have been there. How about this? Has anybody ever prayed and didn't get the answer you wanted? <laughs> okay, yeah, we, we're all there. It's kind of dark out there, but I can still see hands popping up. We, we have prayed for, for sickness to go away. We prayed for financial blessing. We prayed for relationships to be healed. And we pray and we pray and we pray and nothing happens. We don't get the answer. Or we get an answer and we go, God, whoa, 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 maybe I wasn't clear. God, let me, let me ask you again. God, can you do this in my life? And God's like, no, I got it. I got it. I'm just not going to answer the way you want it to be answered. Anybody? Anybody ever okay, good. Let me just tell you that, that us, that you and me that have prayed and didn't get the answer we wanted, you are in the same boat ready with Jesus. Watch, watch this again. It says, he prayed, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. God, if it's your will, would, 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 could we do something else? God, if it's your will, I don't really want to go to that cross. God, I, I mean, this wasn't like the first time somebody was crucified. This is, like I said, this had become a science to them. This had become something they could do this all day long and it didn't bother them. And it was a horrific experience. And Jesus understood. Most likely, Jesus had seen crucifixions before. So even if he wasn't God, he, he, and he was, but he knew what it was going to be. And he could see it. And he's seen it before. And so he comes to that point. He's like, God, if there's any other way that this could happen, let's do that. Maybe your prayer sounds like this. Father, if it be your will, can you remove this from my life? God, if it be your will, can you remove the cancer? God, if it be your will, can you, can you fix this relationship? God, if it be your will, can you, can you provide for me financially? God, if it be your will, can you get us a better pastor? God, I mean, whatever the issue might be, Mike's praying that this week because I failed Mike and Judy. But um, did somebody say amen? <laughs> Just because the lights are off doesn't mean I can't hear. Gosh. Listen, keep praying. Um, yeah, we, we pray, you just fill in the blank. Whatever it is. God, if it be your will, whatever it is. Watch, 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 watch. Jesus says, 
He's praying. He says, Father, if it's you, will take this cup. There's his fill in the blank. But then we have to get to this point. Usually we stop right there, don't we? God, just, if it be your will, and what we really mean by that is, God, just do this for me. Just, God, not really an if, I just need you to do this. And we stop there. But Jesus gives us a great example of what to do. He says, God, if it be your will, do this, fill in the blank, whatever that issue is. But God, I'm going to accept whatever happens because it's your will, not mine. We don't like that part of the prayer. We like to end with, God, just do this. But what we have to be willing to say is, God, here's what I need. Here's what I want. But God, help me to accept what you want. Okay? That's, that's the tough part. Now watch. I told you, you ever prayed and didn't get what you wanted? Here we go. It says, an angel appeared. Put that second screen. There it is. An angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Why? Because he didn't get the answer he wanted. And being in agony... Because he did not get the answer he wanted. Look, he prayed more earnestly. He didn't get the answer he wanted. God, if if, if there's a way you can take this from me, God, I don't really want to carry this cup if you can take it from me. Okay, God, I'm going to accept it. I'm going to carry it. But God, and then he begins to pray more earnestly. That doesn't tell us what he prayed, but it seems to make sense. That if he just prayed for this cup to leave him, that he prayed more earnestly that the cup would leave him. And sometimes I think we just go, God, do this. And we think God's going to always do exactly what we tell him to do. Here was the thing. And Jesus understands this. And I, it, I know he understood this. And this is the part we need to understand. The cup that Christ carried that day that he didn't want to was the cross. If, if the father had said, okay, son, I'm not going to put you through it. If the father had looked at the son and said, you know what? You've been through enough. You've been through enough. There's no reason for it. You know what? Just come home. Just, just leave them. They don't want you. They don't love you. They're going to reject you. They're going to do horrible things to you. Just come home. What if you'd taken the cup from Jesus? See the contrast? The son failed, but the son was faithful. There's the first contrast. It's clear the cross is not what Jesus wanted to do. But because of the son's faithfulness to the father's will, he carried it out. Secondly, the cry of God versus the declaration of a sinner. The cry of God versus the declaration of a sinner. Our second contrast comes in verses 46 and 47. Let me read it again. It says, and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice. Now, understand, when I say the cry of God, that is Jesus, okay? The Father didn't cry out. The the, the Father, interestingly, was silent to a large degree. He spoke through nature, so that's the sun, the darkness kind of shouted, right? But it was more of a silent shout. It says that, Verse 46 says, when Jesus had cried out, that's the cry of God, with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commend or commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And so when the centurion, there's the sinner in the contrast, 
saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this man was righteous, or this was a righteous man. If we're going to find ourselves in this text, it's always a challenge to find out where you are. This is it. On one hand, we have the Son of God, the incarnate Savior, with a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Understand these are the final words of Jesus until after the resurrection. This is it. Uh, There's about seven phrases that Jesus says from the cross. And this is the last one. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now we can look at some of the other texts, some of the other ones. Uh, the, uh, he quotes from the book of Psalms and some other things or more things that he said. But this one, interestingly, is from a Jewish children's bedtime prayer. Where would Jesus have learned that? Oh, that's right. He was a Jewish boy one time. And I can imagine that. Now just think about it. Just, just go with me. Just, just travel with me for just a second. Jesus is on the cross. He's been hanging there for a couple hours. He's nailed, he's beaten, he's bloodied, he's just, he's dying, he's, he's, he's there, he's right at it. I mean, he's going to say this little phrase and then that's it. And in that moment, he goes back to that little bedtime prayer that maybe Mary had taught him when he was a child, that faithful mother that he had. And he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. How many times had he said that as a little child as he laid down to go to bed? And Mary came in and said, okay, Jesus, let's say our bedtime prayers. And he says some prayers. And then part of that prayer was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And now on the cross, he comes back to that childhood prayer. It tells us how our Lord died. He died confidently. He died willingly. And he died victoriously. The Bible tells us in verse 46, having said this, he breathed his last. A few things we learn here. Jesus' death opened the way to God so that everyone can come. There's no longer the the high priest, I've mentioned that a minute ago, to come into the presence of God. But we're all welcomed into the presence of God. No longer do we have to go through another human being because understand another human being is just the same failure that we are. That another human being is just the same sinner that we are. So why would I go to another sinner when I can go straight to the one who's sinless? Why would I go to someone who's not faithful when I can go to the one who's always faithful? Why would I go to someone who, who never can get it right and instead go to the one who always gets it right? You know what I'm saying? Don't come to me with your problems. Go to him with your problems because I'm going to fail you. Right, Mike? I'm going to forget that I'm supposed to be at the hospital and go see Mike. I'm going to forget things. And that's why I have Siri <laughs> to tell me when to do stuff. And I'm going to fail. Listen, the great thing about our God is he opened the door. He made a way. He ripped the curtain. So we don't have to go to each other. We can go straight to him with our problems. But you can come to me if you need to. Just, I'm just saying that. Just... <laughs> You don't want us to come to No, I want you to. But listen, we don't have to trust another human being anymore. Jesus said, look, I'm making a way. I'm going to spread my arms wide. We're going to rip open the curtain. Just come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. We see the relationship between Jesus and God as Jesus calls him Father. That, that word Abba right there. He says, I mean, of all that he went to, don't forget, this is the same guy who's like, Father, if there's another way for this to happen. So, in a sense, no, just, just stay with me for just a minute. He might have felt, <clears throat> sorry, I was screaming last night. I got a little joyful last night thinking about my sermon today. Um, 
He might have felt a little rejection from God. In fact, we know he did. Because um, on the cross, one of the things he said was, you know, why have you forsaken me? There was a little rejection. Maybe that little bit of feeling of rejection had started in the garden because he prayed, God, if there's another way. And then he prayed more earnestly. Like, he didn't get the answer that he wanted. And so he continues to pray even more earnestly. And so he feels that sense of rejection. Father, if there's another way. But now, when he's about to die, who does he go back to? The one that he felt a little rejected from. You see, here's the problem that we have. Let's just be honest. When we don't get, when God doesn't give us what we want, so many times we don't really go back to Him, do we? And I, it's dark. I can see you shaking your hand like, no, yeah, you're absolutely right. What we do is go, okay, God, you didn't do it, so I'm going to do it myself. You didn't, you didn't give me that, so I'm going to go force it myself instead of just trusting God to do it in our life. We see that Jesus was in control until his final breath. Listen to what he said. I commit my spirit. Not the, not the guards at the foot of the cross who nailed me here. Not the, not the religious leaders who lied about me and persecuted and arrested me and forced me, the, 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 the Roman leaders to crucify me. Understand it was Jesus who gave his life and no one else took it. Says, I commit my spirit, and then Jesus breathed his last. Listen to this, it's on the screen. John 10, 17. Therefore, my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I received from my Father. Let it never be misunderstood. That people, although we are responsible for the death of Christ because of our sin, because that's why he died, he laid down his life. He freely died in our place. That is the ultimate example of what love is. In fact, Jesus says there is no greater love than a man were to lay down his life for someone else. Listen, Jesus lays down his life, are you ready, for us. That's the greatest sign of love. I mean, if you want to be a loving part, if you want to be like, how do I, can I love somebody the most? Then you lay down your life for that person. That's what Jesus did. We just want to be like him, right? Right? Okay. Whoa. That was scary. Man, it's like Halloween scary. What's going on in here? Okay. Warren Wiersbe wrote this. We must keep in mind that what our Lord accomplished on the cross was an eternal transaction that involved Him and the Father. He did not die as a martyr who had failed in a lost cause, nor was He only an example for people to follow. Isaiah 53 makes it clear that Jesus did not die for His own sins because He had none. He died for our sins. He made His soul an offering for our sin. That's what He did. He laid down his life for us. That's the cry of God. He says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to lay down my life for you. I commit my spirit. I breathe my last. I lay down my life. That's the cry of God. Now, the contrast here is the declaration of a sinner. And here's where we start fitting ourselves in a little bit. This centurion... Maybe uh, had worked some security detail, or possibly one of the men who had just nailed Jesus to the cross. We're not real sure what he was doing there, but he obviously was in close proximity to the cross. Um, take a drink if you got one. I'm going to. 
just praising the Lord last night. About six seconds long. Okay. One of the men who had nailed it, we don't know why he's there, but after he sees what happened. Now, you, I just read to you 44 to 49. You've got to really read the larger context here. If you go back in Luke, you, you read more of the cross and, and what happened on the cross and what Jesus says on the cross. And then when you put all the Gospels together, you see all seven phrases of the cross and you see all that happened and, and you see the whole picture. And at the end of that, Jesus says, I commit my spirit. He breathes his last. It says, so when the Turian, centurion saw what had happened. Now, you've got to put it all together. Jesus crucified. Now, my guess is if he was there then, he was probably there when Jesus got there. If he was there when Jesus got there, he probably saw them lay Jesus down, nail him to the cross, and stand the cross up. He was there through the whole thing, which also means he was there when the sky turned dark. So he saw the whole picture. He saw everything. And in, at the end of all of that, he says, this guy was a righteous guy. Isn't that interesting? I mean, he makes a judgment call, ready, based on the way that Jesus lived his life. Based on the way that Jesus lived his life, and more importantly, based on the way that Jesus died, this man said, there's something different about this guy. I wonder how many people in our life, how many people we encounter in our life, Look at us and say, man, based on the way they're living their life, they're a good person. Or more importantly, based on the way they're living their life, they're a believing person or a Christian person. It tells us that he glorified God because Jesus was righteous. Two things there. Glorified means to speak of something as being unusually fine or deserving honor. The first thing he does is he gives God all the glory. That's where we got to start. Even when things don't go our way, even when we pray and we don't get what we want, if a centurion, a Roman centurion, opposed to Jewish thought, religion, and everything, so definitely opposed to Jesus, the King of the Jews. If this guy can give glory to God because of what he's seen, then so can we. The glorified God because he was righteous. Righteous means the act of doing what God, ready, requires. What did God require? What did God require? Ready? God required Jesus to die on the cross. And so the centurion looks up and he says, I'm going to give glory to God because Jesus did what was required. This centurion, probably hated by all the Jews anywhere near him. Can you imagine this centurion standing? Let's just, let's just put him at the foot of the cross for a moment. He was obviously nearby. <laughs> He's seen all this play out. Who's, who's also there? The scripture tells us that there were some of his followers there. And there was all these women. So there was Jewish followers of Jesus standing by. And I would guess as this all played out, that maybe the centurion was just being reflective. And he's kind of watching. He's kind of taking account and watching everything. Here's the other thing. We don't have time to get into this. But don't forget there's Jesus in the middle and there's two thieves on either side. One of the thieves kind of acknowledges Jesus and says, you know, we deserve what we get, but you don't deserve what you get. Remember me when we come into heaven and Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. The other one mocks Jesus and curses at him and everything else. And so the centurion's looking up and he's seeing a difference between the world and Jesus. I wonder what people see in us. See, if there's no difference between the two, if we just look like the world, we're not really setting ourselves apart, are we? We talked about that a little bit in Sunday school. How, how do we stand for Christ? Well, we've got to set ourselves apart a little bit. That's tough. And that's, that's sometimes tough to do. But anyway, the centurion is watching all this. I just wonder if sometime 
during that day, John, we know, was at the foot of the cross, that disciple that Jesus loved. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was at the foot of the cross. I wonder if their eyes ever met. Just, I'm going with a thought here. Were their eyes ever met? What did it speak to each other? You can say a lot with your eyes. You know that? Did that centurion in the beginning look with disdain at those Jewish people? Maybe he looked with compassion on Mary. He understood. Maybe that centurion had a young son. And he looked at Mary and thought, I couldn't imagine. No matter what this guy's done, I can't imagine being the mother of the one of somebody on the cross. And so the centurion's taking all of this in and makes a declaration that he was a righteous man. Hated by the Jews because of the way that Jesus had died. Came to this realization that God was worthy of glory because Jesus had done what was required. God was worthy of glory because Jesus had done what was required. The third contrast is this. The crowd... Versus the concerned. The crowd versus the concerned. First, the group that comes, they see the message. He sees the message, but goes back where they came from. <laughs> this group had seen the same thing the centurion saw. Don't forget, look at, well, you, you can't look, the lights well. Let me just read it to you. It says, and the whole crowd who came together in that sight, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. Different reaction. The centurion saw everything and glorified God. And said, this man was righteous. These other folks, they, they beat their breasts, but they left. They didn't, didn't do anything. Verse 49 says, but all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. The way that they left tells us that they felt guilty. And they understood what had happened. When they beat their breasts, it was a sign that they, they knew they had done something wrong, yet they didn't seem to want to try to fix it. They didn't stay around and, and seek repentance from the only one they could have given it, which is the one they just killed on the cross. But they beat their breasts as a sign of, we did something wrong. They, they, and they understood what they had done. The phrase, they beat their breasts and went away, involved not only a sadness over what had happened, but remorse and assumption of guilt. That they understood that what had just happened was not a good thing. But yet, are you ready? They just went home. That's it. They just went home. Like, we're guilty. Let's go home. Luke then describes the second group, including, his, quote, his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee. This is most likely relatives, some close friends. We know John the disciple was there. And they stood, I'm going to guess, in stunned silence as death is declared and the, original, the religious leaders appeared to have won. Let's see the spectacle it's the people on I-4 when I'm driving over to Moffitt and there's an accident on the other side and it causes a five-mile backup on the westbound side because everybody has to stop and look. This was the crucifixion. It's, it's a spectacle to them. That's all it was. So to one group, it was a spectacle. But to the others, they had followed their rabbi from Galilee to the cross. Can you imagine that, that journey? This was their rabbi. This was the one that they were like, I'll leave my family for you. That's what John and James and Peter and Andrew had done. It says they dropped their nets and they followed you. They forsook their family to follow him. And so they followed this guy, this rabbi. They came out of nowhere. They followed him. And Jesus comes along, hey, follow me. Like, okay, let's go. And he calls Matthew and the 12 disciples and all these women. And, and he does all these amazing things. And these crowds are following him all the way to the cross. That's the difference. 
See, if you come to church for the spectacle, or do you come to hear about what your rabbi has done for you? One group pretended to be moved. They beat their breasts. I, I think it's a pretend sorrow. It's a, it's a visible sorrow. It's nothing more than the, the Pharisees of their day making sure everybody knew they were praying. Remember that? The, the Pharisee, I know I'm going over today, but it's okay. The Pharisees is praying, and, and you got the, the sinner over here. You know, he's over here, and he's down, and he's humble. He's like, God, I, I can't even be here. And the Pharisees over here all loud. God, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. The widow's might, she comes in and puts in, but then right behind her, all the Pharisees, look what I'm giving to the church. Some just pretended to be moved. I think this is a fake pretend. That's what I would say about it. They beat their breasts so everybody would think, oh, that person's really upset, but they weren't changed. Their life isn't changed. See, it doesn't matter if you understand that you're a sinner. If your life is never changed, then you are simply pretending to be moved. So while one group pretended to be moved, the other watched in disbelief. This was the one they had trusted. This was the one they followed. This is the one they loved. This is the one who not only they loved, but knew that loved them. Mary Magdalene, we looked at her last week just a little bit, she had demons cast out of her. Who knows how many other people Jesus had healed along the way who watched in disbelief. That's where we ought to be sometimes. Listen, when we read about the cross, we ought to at least a little bit be in disbelief that Jesus did what he did for us. The fact that he went to a cross for us ought to cause us to go, I don't get it, I don't believe that. Did he really do that for me? What do I need to do about that? Do I just go home unchanged? Or what do I need to do? Maybe what you need to do is just stay at the cross for a minute. One group will go on with their lives as usual. They'll go back to their business the next day. Maybe at the water cooler the next day, somebody comes up and says, Hey, did you see the crucifixion yesterday? Yeah, I did. What about that guy in the middle? What would you think? Well, you know, obviously he did something wrong. They crucified him. Anyway, what, are you going to the game next week? I heard there's another crucifixion next week. You want to go back to that? Yeah, let's make a date out of it. You bring your wife, I'll bring my wife, we'll bring our kids, we'll have a good time. See, they just went on with life as usual. While the other, (laughs) the other, (laughs) they're going to change the world. You see the difference? So one group went home. We're just going to go home. Oh, man, that's tough. They're just going to go home. But one group stayed and they watched. And they followed, and they went to that tomb, and they changed the world. That's what we're called to do. Listen, we're not called to come to church and hear the gospel and go sit at home. We're called to hear the gospel and go out and change the world. That's really what happens in church every Sunday, I believe. I just summed up what happens in church. One group gathers to see what's going on. <laughs> well, let's go see what Pastor Matt's going to talk about today. Let's see how long he goes over. Let's see if he's wearing jeans or dress clothes. Let's see if we're singing contemporary music or southern gospel music today. Maybe he'll be, you know, let's go see what's going on. Or oh, they come to be seen. Uh-oh. You're meddling now, right? I'm here. I'm here. I can see you all. Can everybody see me? I'm here. But I'm going to leave unchanged. It's not going to make a difference. I'm only here to see what's going on or to be seen. They pretend to be moved, but they leave and they go on with their lives as usual. That is, here's, here's the test. Does Jesus mean anything to you tomorrow? Uh, I get it. Today he means something because you're here and you're like, man, I'm here. Quit yelling at me. <laughs> I get it. You're here and you love Jesus. 
But how about tomorrow? How about Friday night when you have to make the decision, do I go to the party or do I, and I know y'all aren't young, probably don't party anymore, but um, you know, maybe there's two of the, uh, Aaron, he's the only one young enough in here to party. But um, you know, what are we doing then? When it comes to making decisions in our life, are we really trusting Jesus or do we just trust him on Sunday morning when we're at the spectacle of church? Listen, church ought not be a spectacle. It ought not be a show. It ought to be, what is my rabbi done for me? And let me learn from that. Let me watch the little disbelief and God, and then help me go change the world. But then there are those who come because they are serious about following their rabbi. They want to know how he lived, why he died, and they want to celebrate the fact that he rose from the dead. And then they're determined to change the world. That's the concern. I call you this morning to not be in the crowd, but to be in the concerned. French scientists have built high in the Pyrenees, the world's largest solar furnace. Here it is right here. Great picture. Look at that thing. The largest solar furnace. This amazing furnace has a, com- has a complex of nearly 20,000 mirrors and can concentrate enough sunlight to create a temperature in excess of 6,000 degrees Fahrenheit. According to Time magazine, it says, quote, anchored against a reinforced concrete office. Now, just imagine, <laughs> that's the office, that, that building in front, and, and those are mirrors reflecting sun. You would have bet that thing's insulated, right? I bet the air conditioning bill in that building is crazy. But reinforced concrete office and laboratory building, the huge concave mirror consists of 8,570 individual reflectors. For the furnace to operate efficiently, these small, are you ready, 18-inch square mirrors must all be precisely adjusted so that the light will converge exactly at the focal point 59 feet in front of that mirror. 59 feet from those, that tall mirror straight down is where they're all focused on. Now, here's what happened. It only takes one minute when all 8,570 reflectors are positioned correctly. It takes only one minute for the intense heat to burn through 3H-inch solid steel. Now, this huge reflector shows us the power of 8,570 individual mirrors all reflecting the light from the sun on one spot. What if every Christian in the world, in America, what if just Christians in our church reflected the light of God? What if we became the mirrors of God's image of love and goodness and grace? That maybe when we all get our mirrors in tune and we're all reflecting the glory of God, that we might just as quickly as that thing pierces through solid steel, that our light at Mount Tabor might pierce through the darkness that the devil wants to pour out on our community. It only happens when we become concerned about the cross. It only happens when we say, you know what, I may not get what I want from God, but I'm going to trust God anyway. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep, Gary, listen, you've got to keep praying. Don't you stop praying. Don't you give up. I don't care what the PET scan says. My God's bigger than the doctors. Okay? 
And listen, you've been praying. We've been praying with you. And I know our prayer has always been, God, bring healing, bring restoration, remove the cancer. And then all of a sudden it's back. God, take this cup from me. We still have to trust. We still have to trust. It doesn't mean that we stop praying. We just keep praying more. We pray more earnestly. Listen, if that means our sweat becomes drops of blood for Gary, that's what we ought to do. We're going to keep praying. Whatever the, whatever the prayer need you have is, we can't give up because we don't get our way. And we've got to do more than just come and be spectacles of a show on Sunday morning. We've got to come determined to change the world because Christ went to the cross to change our lives. Let's pray this morning.